And now we will begin. (laughs) The Apostle Paul was adamant about the fact that the gospel he preached came to him independently of any other man. And he stressed that fact in Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which is preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, if there was ever a man who could stand alone in the ministry, it would certainly be the Apostle Paul. He wasn't one of the original twelve, and he wasn't beholding to them for the message he proclaimed. The resurrected Lord had personally called him into the ministry and taught him, and then sent him far away from Jerusalem to the Gentiles. After his conversion, he took the gospel to his homeland and preached by himself throughout the regions of Syria and Cilicia. And he was apparently content to minister there. But while Paul was leading Gentiles to the Lord in his homeland, other Christians from Cyprus and Cyrene had started sharing the gospel with Gentiles in Antioch. And when the apostles in Jerusalem heard of it, they sent Barnabas, a native of Cyprus, to investigate. When he found a large number of Gentile believers in Antioch, He decided he needed help teaching them and went looking for Paul. Barnabas had apparently kept tabs on what Paul was doing and the success he was having ministering to Gentiles. And Paul knew Barnabas. It was Barnabas who had encouraged the apostles in Jerusalem to at least meet with Paul when he had gone there seeking their fellowship three years after his conversion. And when Barnabas expressed a need for Paul's help, Paul was willing to do so. They then worked together for an entire year, teaching the new Christians in Antioch. In fact, it was at Antioch that the disciples, the believers, were first called Christians. So Paul, the independent preacher of the gospel, found himself working with other preachers, and teachers, something he would pretty much continue doing throughout the rest of his ministry. Now, I have to confess that I tend to be a bit more like the independent Paul than Paul the co-laborer. Being a firstborn, I've always been rather independent by nature. As I mentioned last week, I knew I was going to be a preacher when I was six years old. I grew up in the church and was a leader in the youth group. I was close to a youth minister during my teens, and he encouraged me to preach in a preacher boy contest at Lincoln, but I was never really mentored by anyone and never have been. When I went to Bible college, I knew why I was there and couldn't wait to get out. I continued in the youth ministry for a couple of years after graduation, giving Maryland a time to graduate from high school. (laughs) And then we went to Kansas. Two years later, we came to Chatham, and we've ministered here now for over 37 years. 
the direction my ministry took was influenced by a conference that stressed the importance of developing family relationships in the church more than organizational busyness. And I committed myself to preaching expository sermons through Bible books after hearing about Ray Stedman, reading his mimeograph sermons, and spending a couple of weeks with him at a preacher's conference in California. But other than that, conferences, conventions, and gatherings of preachers have not played much of a role in my ministry. I do meet with Chatham preachers for lunch, and we work together on community services and projects. And when uh, the Christian church preachers in the area get together for fellowship, I make an effort to attend. But I'm not particularly close to anyone in the ministry other than those of you with whom I labor here and those we support and those who've gone out from us into ministry. And while I do realize the danger of being an ivory tower preacher who holds himself up in the study and is oblivious to what's going on elsewhere, I put a high priority on study time and am much more concerned about what I'm going to say to you on Sunday morning than what's on being said from other pulpits or, as is more likely the case today, from plexiglass podiums or bar stools. I do, however, try to stay abreast on what's happening in the church at large. But I often find myself becoming more discouraged by what I read than encouraged or challenged. Now, I tell you all this to let you know that Paul's willingness to leave what he was doing so he could assist Barnabas in a ministry in Antioch, and his willingness to go back to Jerusalem and seek the support and fellowship of the apostles probably challenges me more than it does you. But I think it will do us all good to rethink the need for fellowship this morning, as well as the challenges that come from it. We begin with the need for fellowship. We're starting the second chapter of Galatians. Then after an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. And it was because of a revelation that I went up, and I submitted to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles. But I did so in private to those who were of reputation, for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. Getting back to Jerusalem had apparently not been a top priority in Paul's ministry. But after an interval of 14 years from either his last visit or his conversion, he went back with Barnabas. Now, whether this is the visit recorded in Acts 15 when he and Barnabas debated against the need for Gentile converts to be circumcised, or the visit mentioned in Acts 11 when they took an offering from the church in Antioch for the relief of the brethren in Judea, we can't be certain. We do know the relief visit followed a prophecy made by Agabus that a famine was coming, and that may be the revelation to which Paul here refers. And if Galatians was written before the council at Jerusalem, which appears to be the case because he makes no mention of it, this would almost certainly refer to the famine visit. But in either case, Paul's going up to Jerusalem 
demonstrated the fact that he recognized the need for fellowship between workers in the kingdom. And he even says when he went, he submitted to them the gospel he preached among the Gentiles. Now, that almost seems to undermine what he has been insisting upon to the Galatians, that the gospel he preached had been given to him directly by Jesus Christ and that no one, apostle or angel, could alter it. But he's not suggesting that he offered it up to them so they could change it. Only that he offered it up to them so they could, could confirm that they did indeed preach the same gospel. And when he said he privately submitted his gospel to those who were of reputation for fear that he might be running or had run in vain, he wasn't saying that he was afraid he had been wrong. He's simply acknowledging that some were hindering the advance of the gospel by insisting that his message differed significantly from the one preached by the apostles in Jerusalem. And he wanted to assure them and everyone else that they were all on the same page. The Judaizers were casting doubts on Paul's gospel. And the Galatians were deserting the grace of Christ because of it. And Paul recognized that perceived differences of opinion on doctrinal issues could destroy the effectiveness of a ministry, even his. For if the common perception is that there are major disagreements between those who preach the gospel, people will assume there's no way for them to know the truth. And they will tend to dismiss what anyone has to say. That's why it is important for those in ministry to fellowship together. You know, suspicions grow when we don't communicate. And differences are exaggerated when we are isolated from each other. That is true for those in pulpits, and it is true for those in pews as well. I think we all recognize the importance of feeling like a family within the context of a church body. But we must not draw those circles of fellowship so tightly that we build unnecessary walls between us and brothers and sisters in other family units. We don't want to end up like the proverbial churches that sat on three corners of an intersection with their windows open on a Sunday morning, one was singing, Will there be any stars in my crown? The second was singing, No, not one. And the third, That will be glory for me. <laughs> There's a need, a real need, for fellowship in the house of God, individually and corporately. We cannot isolate ourselves from the larger family of God and do our own thing with no regard for what others are saying or doing. Paul recognized that, and so must we, so must I. We accomplish much more for the Lord when we work together. Now, that's not saying that doing so won't create problems. There are risks involved in fellowship. Let's read on. But not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. But it was because of the false brethren who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to bring us into bondage. But we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour, 
so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. Titus isn't mentioned in the book of Acts, but we learn here that he accompanied Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem. And in the letter that Paul wrote to him, he is referred to as Paul's true child in the common faith. He was a Gentile, a Greek, that Paul led to Christ. And he became a much beloved and depended upon co-worker of the Apostle Paul. When he accompanied Paul to Jerusalem, however, he became a source of considerable controversy. Being a Gentile, Titus had not been circumcised. And as we've noted, this was a lightning rod issue in the church at the time. Paul no doubt realized that, that taking Titus into the stronghold of the Judaizers would be a problem. But he took him anyway. In fact, he may have intentionally taken him as a test case. And he quickly became one. The issue wasn't raised by the apostles, however. It was raised by false brethren who had sneaked into their meeting. They weren't real disciples of Christ. They were troublemakers who had infiltrated the church. J.B. Phillips says they were pseudo-Christians who wormed their way into our meeting to spy out the liberty we enjoy in Christ Jesus. And as expected, they were insisting that Titus be circumcised. Now, Paul knew what they were, and he no doubt knew that they would be there. He may have even counted on it. So he could make a case for the truth of the gospel. But even if he had not intentionally set the stage, he was obviously willing to risk a confrontation with hypocrites for the sake of fellowship with true believers. Hypocrites couldn't keep him away. And troublemaking hypocrites in other churches shouldn't keep us from seeking fellowship with the true believers there either. What Paul may have not expected, however, was the extent of the pressure that would be brought to bear. It's quite possible that the hypocrites had affected even the apostles and their judgment. The text isn't clear on who was doing all the compelling. The apostles may have even urged Paul to concede for the sake of peace in the church. But Paul knew that the truth of the gospel could not be compromised. He didn't believe in unity at any cost. He wanted unity and fellowship with other believers, but he knew there were limits. He knew there would be times when a stand would have to be taken and disagreement and confrontation risked. Even true believers will not always agree on everything. And the church, there's going to be conflict. It's inevitable. Some sibling, sibling rivalry should be expected in any family. Hopefully it can be worked out. But risks are taken when we enter into fellowship. Now, some don't think it's worth it. And that's why they keep everyone in the church, even their own church, at arm's length. 
You'll never have a conflict with your brothers and sisters if you don't know them or spend time with them. There are risks in fellowship. Some of us aren't willing to take those risks, and some preachers aren't willing to take those risks either. Paul thought it was worth it. So do I. Besides, what, what Paul says next shows that conflict in the church can be minimized if we'll simply acknowledge that there's room for diversity in the church. We don't all have to have identical ministries or even agree on everything to have fellowship with one another. Verses 6 through 10. But from those who were of high reputation... What they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Well, those who were of reputation contributed nothing to me. But on the contrary, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised, for he who effectually worked for Peter and his apostleship to the circumcised effectually worked for me also to the Gentiles, and recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They only asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Now, the construction here, this, these verses, is admittedly confusing. It appears that Paul got started and then kind of went off on a tangent. And since he was dictating the letter, you know, not correcting it as he goes on a laptop, it's a bit rough. But I think we get his point. Those who he refers to as being of high reputation, the reputed pillars in the church, were James, the brother of Jesus, and Peter, and John. And the Judaizers had exalted them over Paul. And Paul recognized their standing, noting, of course, that God shows no partiality. His point in acknowledging their standing in the eyes of the Judaizers, however, is to make clear that the ones they deemed most important found it unnecessary to add anything to the gospel Paul was preaching. That's what he means when he says they contributed nothing to him. They found his message lacking in nothing essential. They could see that he had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised and they to the circumcised. But that they were not preaching different gospels. They were preaching the same message, just to different target audiences. And while that might alter their approach a bit, it would not and could not alter the gospel message. And they acknowledged that Paul was most effective working with Gentiles, and Peter with Jews. They recognized that Paul had a special gift, a grace given to him for working with Gentiles, and they gave to him and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. But they agreed he should go his way and they theirs. They realized they had been called to different ministries, but that there could be unity in diversity and diversity in unity. 
that they didn't have to actually physically work together to support each other or to recognize the validity of one another's ministry. Not all parts of the body are intended to function the same way, but they must work in harmony if the body is to function effectively. So, yes, we do need each other, and we can work together even if we don't do everything the same way or even agree on everything. Sometimes I, I realize I come off as being pretty negative and very critical of things taking place at the church at large. And there are things taking place that, that upset me greatly and things I'm convinced we need to be aware of and know how to deal with. We're constantly being challenged to give up the gospel that's been given to us and to buy into something new and different and more effective. It's a constant challenge, and I tend to be a little defensive. I acknowledge that. But we must fellowship. <laughs> There's a need for fellowship in the body of Christ. There's a need for fellowship within a congregation. It's important that you get to know each other so you can encourage each other, minister to each other, and perhaps even argue with each other. That can be healthy. That can be good. And there's a need for fellowship between congregations. We don't do the things we used to do. Back when I was a kid, you know, we had get-togethers all the time between churches, and we had sings together, and, and uh, we had men's groups that met together, and that stuff pretty well has disappeared in the last 30 years. I don't know that it's good or bad, but I think we need to be aware that we have brothers and sisters outside of this building. Okay? It's important. Very important. Now, there are risks, as we've seen, in fellowship. And getting together with others might lead to confrontation and even open disagreement. But it's worth the risk. And we must never think that every church that everyone in ministry should be just like us. Or that all of our Timothys should be just like me. And I've sent, I've sent them all this book that I've been spreading around to the elders and the leadership here, and I want them all to read it. And uh, corresponded with, with some. It's been, it's been kind of fun. And I stress to them, I'm not saying you have to be what we are here. Or that your ministry should be a picture of my ministry here. You know, God forbid that that should happen. The kingdom of God is much larger than any one church or one preacher. But we do need to be unified doctrinally. We need to understand what's important. We need to know when to give and when to hold. You know, when to yield and when to stand firm. There are huge challenges out there. And young preachers face them day in and day out as well as do old preachers. So let's pray for each other. Let's encourage each other. Let's study together. Let's talk. Let's argue if need be. But let's recognize that we're together in this ministry. And that God's word must be proclaimed in truth. 
to a world that has given up on even the existence of truth today. We've got a big job ahead of us. A big job ahead of us. It's my prayer that we can be bound together in a sense of unity, even in the midst of diversity. We need God to bind us together as a family here and as a family universal in the world at large. The church is an amazing body, and we're privileged to be a part of that. We are the bride of Christ. Collectively, we are the bride of Christ. Let's not lose sight of that. Let's embrace it. Let's celebrate it. And let's pray that our unity might be seen even in the midst of diversity. Let's commit ourselves to that. And let's pray for God to bind us together. Let's stand.